Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. So here we are, impeaching Donald Trump one more time. Do you have a sense of deja vu right now? None. <laughs> Slate's Dahlia Lithwick has always been my impeachment buddy. So yesterday, I called her up and asked her to give me an impeachment preview. Again. I have no sense of deja vu, both because a year ago is like 10 kafillion glacial ages. Like, I'm trying to remember how I felt the night before the impeachment trial in the Senate a year ago, and I can't even recall. Also, it was a totally different enterprise, right? I think at the time, Democrats were trying to explain this unbelievably complicated, arcane conspiracy theory with 100 players and all these witnesses. And and now it's the opposite, right? Like, it's like roll tape. (laughs) Everybody saw it. It's not complicated at all. Last month, Dahlia interviewed the lawyer who helped lead the House impeachment proceedings the first time around. She wanted to know how he saw this sequel. He just sounded as though the inexorable lesson he learned from 1.0 is that it's just not a legal proceeding and that he had taken, you know, years of history, having prosecuted the mob, having, you know, prevailed in big mob trials and big white-collar conspiracy trials, that he went into this proceeding thinking it was a legal proceeding and walked away realizing it was politics all the way down. Hmm. And the thing he said, Mary, that really has stuck with me is, if this were a legal proceeding, half of the people who are jurors would have to be excluded, right? They were either eyewitnesses or victims. Some of them were implicated. If this were a trial, on opening day, you go to the judge and you say, you know, strike this juror, strike this juror. This person can't be here. This person has a conflict of interest. None of that's going to happen. What Dahlia's getting at here is that the impeachment proceedings we're about to watch, they can't possibly meet our usual standards of fairness. Instead, We're going to be watching a real-time Rorschach test for our democracy. I mean, you've said how this is a really different endeavor than it was last time. Do you think having the facts at hand, having them be so easy to understand, having the whole country having borne witness to this, do you think it's going to make a difference? So this is the thing I've really been thinking about. I think everyone can at least agree nominally that something happened on January 6th. But I think now we're going to have this split screen because there's no rulings. There's not going to be any determination of any of these things. And so it's it's this choose-your-own-ending legal process that is not a legal process at all. Then the only question is, can the Democrats score some points in a purely political process? Today on the show... What will it take to successfully prosecute or defend the president? 
It depends on your audience. The politicians in the Senate all lived through the same traumatic events, but they've got very different ideas about what those events mean. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Former President Trump is only charged with a single article of impeachment, high crimes and misdemeanors for inciting an insurrection at the Capitol. When the House impeachment managers begin making their case today, they're going to attempt to prove that Donald Trump's words and actions on and leading up to January 6th directly influenced the mob that stormed the building in an attempt to stop Joe Biden's election from being certified. It is an understatement to say they've got a lot of material to work with. Their 80-page brief points to social media video, police body cam footage, and Trump's own words to paint a picture of how the Capitol got breached. It does seem to me, and I have heard, that there is going to be video evidence, that there's going to be audio evidence. There was, we had that. Uh, You'll remember some roll tape last year when uh, the House impeachment managers were trying to lay out the collage of the conspiracy. But I think there will be an immense amount of uh, kind of video imagery. We've got, you know, the 10-minute just security video that exerted Trump's speech that day and the mob reacting to that speech and seeing it as a call to violence. This video, put together by the website Just Security, shows the direct relationship between Trump's words and the crowd's actions. It starts with a kind of call and response as the president speaks at the ellipse. When Trump says, we're going to walk down to the Capitol... Those watching begin echoing him. You get the sense that the mob is reacting to line after line. Like, he literally is ginning up this violent, fomenting this violent response, I think this video goes a long way to saying that speech alone, clearly you can tell, elicited from the rioters some kind of sense that they were authorized, that they were being given permission to go do rioting. There's this other thing, which is as rioters have been charged— for their behavior on January 6th. We've seen in legal documents many of the rioters saying the reason they were there was because of the president. And it seems to me like if I'm an impeachment manager, that's just more evidence for me to present that 
there was a causal relationship here between what the president had been saying for a number of weeks and especially on January 6th itself and what happened later that day. That's right. And I think it's it goes to this defense they're going to try to raise, Mary, which is the more we learn that this riot was weeks, if not months in the making, that it was well-planned and well-financed, they're going to say the more we learn about that, the more it lets the president off the hook, right? Because because this was going on with or without him. Right. The train had left the station, right? Nothing he did or said uh, on the afternoon of the 6th in a 50-minute speech was going to trigger the violence. They came intent on doing violence. But I think you're exactly right. When you read those pleadings, that's completely debunked because what they're saying is, I answered the call. He started telling us in August. He started telling us in October that if he lost, it would be because the election was stolen. He started saying in December, everybody come to the Capitol on January 6th and get wild. The Trump team's main defense It actually doesn't have much to do with what the former president said. It's all about process. It's the thing we've seen that a lot of the Senate Republican side has lashed themselves to is just the purely arcane constitutional argument that you cannot convict and impeach a former president, the the lame duck analysis. We saw that, by the way, debunked this week by no less a person than Chuck Cooper, who has been a prominent, prominent uh, Republican. An advisor to Ted Cruz. Yeah. And and who, I, I mean, I was shocked, who came out in the Wall Street Journal saying, this is garbage. And I think we can agree the bulk of the scholarship suggests it is garbage. We know that uh, there has been an impeachment for the removed uh, st- secretary of the Treasury. So it's not it's not very well supported, but it's it's a sufficiently abstract argument that it gets you off the hook from dealing with all the blood and guts and feces that you're describing, Mary. Do you think that someone as prominent as Chuck Cooper making this argument, do you think it's going to sway anyone? You know, it's interesting. I, I was most fascinated by the attempt that Rand Paul last week, who tried to force this issue. He forced a vote on it. Right. A procedural vote, even in advance of the Senate trial, getting people on the record saying we shouldn't be here. As of noon last Wednesday, Donald Trump holds none of the positions listed in the Constitution. He is a private citizen. The presiding officer is not the chief justice, nor does he claim to be. His presence and the Chief Justice's absence, Chief Justice's absence, demonstrate that this is not a trial of the president, but of a private citizen. Therefore, that, I that this whole proceeding is unconstitutional, that it there's no jurisdiction for the Senate to do this, that John Roberts is not presiding. There's no mechanism, even if we wanted to, to try a lame duck president. And he got kind of, I think the term of art is crap ton of votes. And people were probably not surprised, but not delighted to see that many, many Republicans were willing to vote with him to just do away with this. And many people saw that as just a sign, like there's no way that the Senate will vote to convict. 
Right. And uh, Jim Newell, Slate's Jim Newell, made the really good point that that wasn't a vote, that it was unconstitutional on the merits. And we have certainly seen, I think, in the days since that vote, several Republican senators say, oh, I wasn't voting on the merits. I was just voicing a general opinion that I thought it might be unconstitutional. So I think what Chuck Cooper does is give those people a little bit of space to say, I hadn't studied the subject. I spent the weekend, you know, curled up with uh, the Federalist Papers. <laughs> now I understand, you know, this has happened before. So I think maybe it was an effort to dislodge some of them and to say, you know, that vote represented a you know, procedural point, but it is not reflective of my final views on uh, what the merits are. So maybe it'll peel off a few people. You make this point that this argument, which is the central argument so far of the president's lawyers, that you just can't impeach a guy who's already out of office, that it creates this logical bind, which is that the last time we impeached President Trump, the Republicans argued we should let the voters decide. And by impeaching him, you're taking away the voters' agency. So you can't impeach someone who's a sitting president. Now that he's out of office, you can't impeach him because he's out of office. And it raises this question of like, hold it, who can you impeach? I, I think it's right. I think the, the only point I wanted to make is the number of Republicans who at the time said, well, yeah, he probably did it. It's super bad. But we're coming up on an election. Let the voters decide. And that was the deflection. That was the way to not— For the first impeachment. Yeah, to not take agency or responsibility for the vote. Let's let let the, let's let the people decide. It's not for us as the Senate to remove the president going into election. And that was, by the way, uh, Trump's impeachment lawyers leaned really hard on that. Let this uh, be decided in the November election. Then it's decided in the November election. Trump tries to actually steal that election. And now the argument is, oh, he's gone from office. Uh, so we let the voters decide. Trump tried to quash that. And now we can't impeach him. So there's no place for the Senate. And either way you look at it, it's win-win for them because in both cases, they knew what had been done. It was not in dispute. Last year, they could throw sand in the gears and question that. This year, I think they can. And so instead of questioning it, you make this lofty argument about, oh, institutionally, our hands are tied. But in both cases, I think it's a way of stepping out of having any agency, any responsibility and saying, uh, you know, there's no place for the Senate in the impeachment process. And we, we know from the Constitution that has to be wrong. The math of impeachment is pretty unforgiving. You need 17 Republican votes to convict. And most Senate Republicans have already signaled by voting for Rand Paul's point of order that they could simply wave away the former president's behavior. That's why Dahlia says so much focus is going to shift to just a few politicians, those who've said that in spite of that vote, they still might be open to convicting the president. The question is how vocal they're going to be. In the House, Republican Liz Cheney faced blowback both in Washington and back home in Wyoming for voting to move impeachment forward. But in the last few days, she's started speaking out, holding her ground. 
watching Cheney on Fox News this Sunday, Dahlia felt hopeful. People uh, in the party uh, are mistaken. Uh, they, they believe that BLM and Antifa were behind uh, what happened here at the Capitol. That's just simply not the case. It's not true. Uh, and we're going to have a lot of work we have to do. People have been lied to. Uh, the, the extent to which uh, the president, President Trump, for months uh, leading up to January 6th, spread the notion that the election had been stolen or that the election was rigged, um, was a lie. What and, was and most striking to me is the part where she said to Chris Wallace, people believe lies. They were lied to. And these are lies about Antifa. And these are lies about the election being stolen. And there's a sense in which she was, it was almost a cri de cur of, we have to stop believing lies and we have to stop purveying lies and we have to stop relying on lies for our legitimacy. And so I, I I take hope in that only because the alternative is just to fall down the Marjorie Taylor Greenwell, right? Like to just keep spiraling into a world where manufactured facts support manufactured claims, supporting manufactured legal and political processes. And I just think that way madness lies. And so for me, I, I don't have vast hope. I think that simply saying the way we heard last time around, you know, I, I deplore this. I'm a Republican senator. He should know better, but it's over. There's nothing we can do. Our hands are tied is such an attractive piece of cowardice if you want to invoke it. And so I have very little hope that 17 people won't choose to invoke it. But I do think, again, going back to a sense that this isn't complicated, we all saw what we saw, we heard what we heard, that there may be at least some sense that, you know, what Ben Sass is calling for the senator from Nebraska, which is a real reckoning, not just about Donald Trump and Trumpism, but about truth and reality. I think that maybe, maybe there's at least some hope that there are people who feel wedded to that program. When we come back, just how high are the stakes here? This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. 
Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. According to a poll from the Associated Press, two-thirds of Americans think Donald Trump bears at least some responsibility for what happened on January 6th. An ABC News poll shows 56% of Americans want the Senate to convict him. So I asked Dahlia if the impeachment process isn't so much legal as political, wouldn't numbers like that have some weight? Wouldn't they mean a conviction in the Senate would be a foregone conclusion? I would say this is where you have to disaggregate how a senator is going to vote on an acquittal from this huge political issue that is separate from that. In other words, it's not a right-left Democrats, uh, uh, Republicans. It's not a QAnon question. It's not a messaging problem. It's a simple, we don't live in a democracy problem, by which I simply mean that if you map that polling and the other polling that's come out this week that suggests that as a matter of preference. Most Americans do think that something went horribly wrong and there should be accountability. Map that against gerrymandering, map that against a non-representative, wildly malapportioned Senate, map that against dark money in politics, all the things that are broken in politics that don't have anything to do with this trial. It's really clear, I think, that politics has distorted, so distorted, representative democracy that it doesn't matter. So you're saying if the Senate doesn't vote to convict, it actually just serves as more proof that our representative democracy is broken. I think so. And I think, you know, at a couple of levels, right? I think that if we look at the trends of the last few weeks, I was just in preparing for this rereading the House impeachment manager's, you know, 80-page filing, it's just so clear that immediately in the hours after January 6th, Kevin McCarthy, Mitch McConnell, there was no dispute what had happened descriptively, and there was no dispute, I think, that Donald Trump had played some serious role in it. All of those people have backed away. I mean, they may not have gone down to Mar-a-Lago like Kevin McCarthy did to kiss the ring, but they've all backed away. And meanwhile, you know, the Republicans who, like Liz Cheney, who forcefully have made, continued to make the argument that, of course, this was appalling and lawless and that Trump bears responsibility and that democracy requires accountability, are being censured and almost stripped of uh, their leadership role. So, I think if you look at how distorting politics, electoral politics is, it has to be the case that if all of those voices have been marginalized and punished and the voices, the loudest denialist voices uh, have been rewarded, then I think it goes to your question, which is, of course, democracy is so fundamentally malapportioned and not representative that the general public sense that we saw what we saw, we heard what we heard, and something needs to be done about it, is completely diluted by the way electoral politics works. But is there another mechanism after that that we would turn to? So many of the pathologies that we are seeing play out are reflective of the fact that 
some sizable proportion, but certainly not a majority of the country, believes truly crazy things uh, that are not rooted in truth or injustice, and that somehow they have captured massive, massive parts of democratic governance. And if the measures we're seeing, by the way, in the last week or two that are being rammed through in the states to further curb voting, to further encourage gerrymandering, to further uh, invite dark money into politics, if all of those things are allowed to continue, this is not the end of something. (laughs) This is the very earnest continuation of something much worse. And so I think the other mechanism is to have functional representative democracy. And that means fighting very quickly for things like H.R. 1 and Senate reform and court reform and all the new voting rights. Act. Yeah, all the boring process stuff that nobody wants to talk about. But I think that if you have a truly maladaptive, dysfunctional democracy that is being rewarded, perpetually rewarded for moving further and further into the land of denialism and blame, the only way to fix that is to make sure that the boring work of protecting voting rights, protecting uh, one person, one vote, is done in time for the next election and election after that. Yeah, it's interesting because you're saying basically like a DOJ investigation of President Trump or something like that. Even that is too small ball. Like you need to be thinking much bigger if this impeachment fails. Yeah, you know, the book I've been reading this week, it's so depressing, is um, Milton Mayer. (laughs) Quite the recommendation. Yeah, yeah. No, if you want to be even sadder, Slate listeners, um, I've been reading Milton Mayer's book, They Thought They Were Free, which is a phenomenal, phenomenal piece of journalism by an American journalist who goes back after Nuremberg, after... uh, uh, Presumably, Germany has been cured and talks to a bunch of basically just ordinary guys in Germany. Some of them are in the party. Some of them aren't. Some of them are sort of complicit. Some of them aren't. And he just goes back and interviews them. And it's the reason it's so depressing is they just all of them come back to, but, you know— Hitler was really good about the jobs. Like, he was really good for the economy. We we joined the party oh because of our jobs. We joined the party because we didn't hate Jews. We didn't, you know, we didn't even, they all had Mein Kampf on their bedstand. None of them read it. So they're, they're indoctrinated in a weird way that I feel like it's useful to keep thinking in terms of cults and not in terms of politics. And it's depressing only because there's no remorse. There's none. And I think that the work of even truth and reconciliation that you're describing, Mary, only gets you so far. I mean, what better truth and reconciliation than the Nuremberg trials? These guys were unaffected. They just felt like we didn't know. We weren't sure. We didn't see. One day the synagogue Hmm. burned. We have no idea. (laughs) It's just the level of mass denial disavowal of responsibility yep and i think that that's what you're asking me is can you get people anyone to take responsibility for this thing if donald trump can't take responsibility for this thing and i'm not as sanguine as i once was 
Dahlia Lithwick, thank you so much for joining me. I think. (laughs) Dahlia Lithwick covers the courts and the law for Slate. She also hosts the fantastic Amicus podcast. And that is the show. What Next is produced by Mary Wilson, Davis Land, Daniel Hewitt, and Elena Schwartz. Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery help us every single day. And I'm Mary Harris. I will catch you back in this feed tomorrow. Tomorrow.